Welcome to The Loaded Goat, your podcast about the Andy Griffith Show. I'm Aaron. And I'm Chris. And if you're really still not con- under- wondering, if you're still confused about what the name of The Loaded Goat represents, watch season three, episode 18. So this week we have the um, episode, Ellie Comes to Town. And it was um, pretty much a, a very significant episode for a number of reasons. Um, I, the first thing I wanted to point out is that they mention Eleanor Donahue in the credits, and Eleanor Donahue plays Ellie Walker, who's the new town pharmacist, and she had become famous playing the oldest daughter on Father Knows Best. It's significant because she's the only one who appears in the credits other than Andy Griffith, Ron, Ronnie Howard, or Don Knotts during the course of the series. So they actually put her in the credits, which was kind of something they never did after that. And so... Um, she is so, so she's Ellen Ellie is on for only the first season, but um, she's a very significant character in the show's in the show's history. You know, you stole my opening line that I was going to point out. I was sure that you would have missed that she was in the credits. I was so surprised by that. She must have the best agent in the book. They, I think it's often odd how they the credits for the opening show are funky. You know, it's a really, really short opener, which is, you know, shows have ebbed and flow on this for years it's called the andy mm-hmm. griffith show they talk about andy griffith and then somehow ronnie howard this five-year-old has second billing for the majority of this uh for the opener and then they bring in uh, uh eleanor donahue right at the at the end i was i was shocked by it but she's a welcome breath of fresh air to this this uh season yeah no she definitely is and i think one of the things that that i w- would point out is this isn't even the show that she's best known for. I mean, it really is. Her time on Father Knows Best is, if, if you were a t- television fan in the 50s and 60s, that would be what you would remember her for. Obviously, I don't. I never watched Father Knows Best. I can't imagine that you've ever watched Father Knows Best. Not, 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 that's not a comment on your television viewing habits. It's just not one that's on regularly at this point. It's not an easy, it's not an easy I don't even think it's an easy show to find. No, I've I've never heard about it, but I've been told that a lot. And I like to tell people that father knows best. And then people remind me that I'm not a father. And so it doesn't really carry much weight. Well, I think father knows best. That starts to get all relative the older you get. And that's, um, that's, 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 that's a feeling you have. And so if you, um, if you don't go out and become a father, your, your feeling of father knows best really starts to wane as time goes it does- on. It does carry a completely different tone if you're like this, you know, 30-year-old and you're like, daddy knows best. And you're like, well, you talk about your father? Grow up, kid. <laughs> or if it's like, or if you're 30 and you have a newborn and you're like, well, father knows, daddy knows best. I guess daddy and father knows best are slightly different. I shouldn't conflate the two. Daddy knows best sounds a little, um, <laughs> sounds a little, sounds a little like it has a failure to launch thing and sounds just a tad bit creepy. Um, but father knows best. It's always, I mean, it's, you know, it's a show set in the fifties and probably, you know, reflected 50s ide- ideology and values at the time, I would say. So that, that was before this show, correct? Yeah, it ran from 54 to 60. So I'd say it wound down right as the Andy Griffith show picked back up. So I think she she wrapped up on Father Knows Best, at least from what I understand, and went to, to be on the Andy Griffith show. Gotcha. So I have a number of kind of cultural questions about this, more of life in the South versus the show. If I can, if you want to talk through the, the scene first, or I can throw those at you. 
Well, let's start, let's start the show and then you can ask the questions as you, as you go, as you go on, if that works for you. So, um, so, so they go to the drugstore, um, episode starts, Andy and Aunt V go to the drugstore. Uh, no one's there, you know, so something you don't see in, in Washington, D.C. and probably even in most small towns in America today is he just takes the key, lets himself in goes to getting it be what she wants and she's just going to pay for it. One thing I did notice is that he reads the perfume and he keep and he just butchers the French, um, the French name for the perfume and mentions that he was in Paris during the war. This is the only time that that is ever mentioned that he was in the war. And I was, you assume it's world war two, but one of the things I've noticed is they do an, a, a class reunion episode years, like uh, three or four years later. And it's, and it, and it says they're the class of either 45 or 46. So it's clear Andy wouldn't have been serving during world war two. So you wonder if he was supposed to have been referencing Korea, have served in the Korean war or, and just happened to go to Paris or that it was just another issue of continuity that they never, never worried about. I also wouldn't put it past Andy and Barney to have fought their own war that they talk about like it was one of the great world wars. But maybe it was Andy and Barney and his one bullet out, out in the uh, back roads of Mayberry. You really don't want to think. Trees. You don't want to think that Andy would pass off calling the war. <laughs> being out in the woods with Barney Fife. I mean, that's a lot of people conflate their struggles in this day and age, but you don't really want to think that Andy, Andy Taylor would do something like that. That's fair. That's fair. So my main question for you about this was, you know, was the drugstore a staple of your youth? You know, we didn't have, we had one Reynolds drug in growing up in Helena, Montana that had, it was more like a candy convenience store. And I'm just kind of interested in how this trajectory grows. We have these people with higher education degrees in the medical mm-hmm. field come, and then they also end up running convenience stores. I don't know the progression of how you end up having these drug stores, where that, where that went away, too. But it's also a little bit of the CVS model, I suppose. I mean, it is the CVS model. I mean, I think, the, uh, I think that, was just a, that was just a thing. Is I mean, you pro- you probably, there probably wasn't enough money in just doing a regular pharmacy. So you had a, you set up, you set up the, um, you set up, you know, you sold, you sold goods, you had your soda fountain machine, you had your ice cream, which I mean, it sounded like going to the drugstore when you're a kid in the fifties sounded like a little slice of heaven. I mean, it's, it does, it's not, it was not the same experience I had going to the will save or the Walgreens or the CVS. And I mean, it was like, you just went there and they had, they, they didn't have that counter. So the counter just always struck me as kind of awesome. Here's a question. Do you think that big pharma was secretly behind the drugstores having all the candy and ice cream in and, uh, and cola so that the kids would begin to establish a fond relationship with, with, with drugs and uppers? Uh, with up with uppers i mean i don't know if they i mean i don't know about um, about that i mean i i i don't want to sit and say that there wasn't you know it's a business like anything else but i i have a tough time <laughs> believing that they were like you know what we're gonna infiltrate we're gonna get we're gonna get kids to take medicine by getting them to, to drink sodas um because i think adults would love to go have sodas and ice cream at the um, at the drugstore 
you don't think it's a common progression of you go there for like your your penny candy, then you're having an ice cream sundae, then a root beer float, and then pretty soon you're having just like Zima, and then you're drinking hard liquor, and then you're just on down into the medicine cabinet. Well, I mean, if you're talking, I mean, I I I I don't believe. I, I mean, that's one thing where I, I have a tough time thinking that that may have been the plan um, going, going in. Okay. I mean, I don't think, cool. I don't think they were, I mean, maybe there was something <laughs> where they had internal research and they said, we see the kids are drinking Coke floats and we see what happens years down the road <laughs> before you know it, they're going to be, we're going to, we're going to have them addicted to Quaaludes. I just don't know if that was really the, <laughs> uh, really the plan at that point. That would be quite the PowerPoint presentation. I mean, I I, 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 have, I have to say that's like that's like you just see like like an extreme documentary of where somebody's like, let me shatter <laughs> your views, and it's like and it's like one of those irresponsible documentaries where they're talking about the town drugs the town drugstore and how it was so wonderful, and they're like, but this was what was really happening, and then you you know <laughs> it all goes black and white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Ellie show Ellie shows up. It's her. She's um, take, taking over the business for her uncle, I believe, and sees what's going on. Thinks the place is being robbed. It's Barney to come help, and Barney's parked next to a mail drop, so he has a tough time getting out of the car. They get in. They get in there. They realize she realizes it's the sheriff. She's kind of appalled at the whole behavior that he's able to walk in and just like you know make himself at home. But Aunt B and Barney leave, and Andy um, stays and chats with her a little bit and tells a joke and makes her laugh. And he says what I think may be his most cringeworthy line on the on the on the show. On the show. Can, I mean, on the entire can I guess, show. Can I guess? Can I guess what I think you're going to say? Yeah. Yeah. Is it prouder than a prized heifer? No, that's actually not even it. I mean, that's rather than, rather than a prize effort is um, is 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 is, is I'm, I'm, it's a little cringeworthy too. But that's a nice smile, just as toothy. That just kind of bothers me a little bit. I can't imagine anybody ever saying like if somebody if I said to a to a to a woman, I even to my wife, if I said that's a nice smile, just as toothy, I think. I think that would just give what they what is it they call it the ick factor. I think that would really that yeah. would really be going up there. I think also knowing your lovely wife, that you'd probably lose some of those teeth if you said that. I think I that think would I, be an appropriate response. I think I think I just might. It's just it's just a weird it's just a weird thing. You know, you, you just wouldn't say that to somebody today, and I have a tough time believing that was a standard thing to say in 1960. You know, they treat her with odd respect throughout so you know i would imagine was having a female pharmacist that had to have been fairly new is that a was that a normal thing in that time that seems like a good glass glass door shattered it probably wouldn't have it probably would have been a newer thing especially in a small town in the south i would have to imagine just given how things went now that was something i was going to talk to you about because or bring up later because i was just like is this the way they talk about her is a little bit, it would, it seems very, very sexist, you know, watching it today. It also seems kind of harmless too. It's a weird, it's a weird combination because they're all saying that lady druggist or that, you know, that lady pharmacist and it's a, you know, and you're like, 
but they're all just a bunch of like the way every all of them operate in the show they're all just kind of a she's like the smartest person in the entire show so they all come across as a as a bunch of goobers even though they're referring to her as the lady druggist yeah so the one the first i have some thoughts on this the first thing Mm -hmm. i thought of was if calling her a druggist was supposed to be a diminishing term versus a pharmacist or is that just what y'all called pharmacists i mean i think i think it was kind of like the term i mean like look at it this way it's like the term okay like druggist is i think was a term i can't i I don't know why we always keep coming back to it's a wonderful life but they talk about the town druggist (laughs) and it's a wonderful life who happens to be the pharmacist um it's um and it's one of those things where they um, where I think the term is kind of, it almost sounds derogatory now, but it wasn't derogatory back in the sixties and fifties. I also, but I also, I mean, it's kind of like the term, um, blow your wide for years that was associated with gambling of basically putting all of your money in on gambling and losing all of it. And, um, and so that's not what it's referred to as now. But I was like in my in my job when I would work in communications, you'd be in there with somebody who was a little older and they'd be talking about strategic direction and they'd say, well, we don't want to blow our wad on this. And you'd have to set them aside and be like, they don't, that doesn't mean gambling. That they're not, you're, they don't think you're referring to gambling. Your strategy is still the same, but it sounds a little, it sounds a little crosser. I mean, you know, so that's the other thing you got to flag. Was this in your notes, or did you just find yourself on a tightrope you had to try to walk through? No, you just asked me about that, and I was just, when I think of statements, I think of phrases that haven't aged well, that's like one that really just pops into my my head. Yeah, that's that's first and foremost, for sure. I think, you know, to your first question about the sexism of of this particular episode, you know, there was one episode later on that I thought this as well. Um, that, you know, they they set it up to be sexist and they treat and it and you broach on these topics. But then through the larger narrative of the show, you do see that, like, the men are always the fools and she's the one that's right. And yeah. she has a redemption at the end that does kind of bring people who maybe were would have judged there being a female pharmacist at the beginning into kind of the end episode where you're like, oh, well, you know, she's pretty good at her job and smart and knows how to manage the town. I was wrong at the beginning. You've brought people along into an equality conversation in yeah. maybe a way that was appropriate for that time. I mean, I I kind of feel like, I feel like that was kind of, I think that was, I mean, it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like Family Ties or, or other shows or, or other shows that really like, they never, like I said, ever had a, on a very special episode of the Andy Griffith show or anything like that, but they did somehow managed to kind of just I think they did shape thinking and I mean they did they did I mean I felt like especially with not just with Ellie but with other female characters on the show there was a level of female empowerment that I don't know if it was that I think was subtle that um that I don't think that I don't think you know you had to if you 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 weren't really even thinking about if unless you were really thinking about it you might you might have just kind of just watched it and been like, huh. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have, it wasn't a, it wasn't in your face about it. Yeah, totally. Which was probably yeah. the the right, the right way to bring that conversation up in a, in a different time. Yeah. Obviously everybody should have been equal from the beginning, but that's not always where we're coming from. 
so no no i mean and then you know it's um yeah so but i appreciate it you know watching it it's it's kind of cringeworthy but it is kind of like she's always the smartest person on the show whenever she's in one of those positions where there's a level of sexism it's it's a you know which i mean that's kind of one of the challenges of sexism is you're often when you're the smartest person in the room and people don't take you seriously or something like that because you know that's the difference with this show is that they end up ultimately all end up taking her seriously and seeing her point that's a good point yeah. um, kind of pivoting on her education front i looked into so on her diploma it says um bernard university which, you know, one of my personal goals for this podcast is to make comparisons to other TV shows that maybe Aaron, you haven't watched as closely. And so in, in the uh, network drama, Madam Secretary with Taya Leone, her middle daughter, Noodle, goes to Bernard University to study fashion design. That's what all I got. What a coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, what a quinky dink. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Let's um, let's move on. Um, you know, so um, the, so um, so uh, Ellie is is managing. Man, Andy leaves. Ellie's managing the managing the pharmacy. Emma Brandt, who is just kind of the um, is just kind of the you know the. I mean, just kind of the the linchpin of all these episodes. It seems like. I mean, they're they're always going to Emma, who is just fun to watch, and as a um, in these early episodes, and is just a fun character. She comes in. She wants to um, she wants to get her pills. She doesn't have a prescription. Ellie won't give them to her without a prescription. So she goes to the uh, goes to the jail where Barney keeps cleaning his gun, even though he never fires it. Emma comes in demanding help. Andy can't give it to her, and Emma leaves. And um, she walks away and leaves. And as like she said earlier in the in the one of the first episodes, naughty deputy. She goes bad, bad sheriff. <laughs> I she emerges in this as really one of my favorite characters. She's got all of the delightful elements of Barney Fife, but just in a completely different role in service in the script. That you know, I almost. You know, when she's walking out and she says something like, I'm not going to pay for my cotton balls at the end of the year either. That feels exactly <laughs> like, the, I guess maybe this was the scene before, but this is, it feels exactly like a kind of Larry David-esque Curb Your Enthusiasm ad lib. She's leaving and she's like, I'm not even going to pay for cotton balls. It's like, there's no reason that someone would have ever written that down. And no. she's just this delightful ad lib character. Well, and you know, you just kind of wonder, like, if that's if that if if some of that stuff. I mean, I know the scripts were written, but you know, some of those things were just made up on the fly. When you think of just the like you said, the absurd things you could say. I mean, it reminds me of this time when I was was a bag boy at Bilo Grocery back back home in high school, um, in Tennessee, and. You know, you you would take you take the groceries out for folks. You know what I mean, they, they don't do this anymore, and I don't know if they do this. I don't know if they even have bag. They don't have bag boys here, but I don't know if they had bag boys. Um, if they still we have, have bag we boys. have bag boys at the current grocery stores in Helena, Montana. Okay, right, right now. Okay, so I would take the groceries out, and um, you always hope you'd get a tip for doing it, and um, but it was always <laughs> really. Yeah, I mean, you didn't expect it. You didn't like stand there with your hand out or anything like that. But it sometimes give you a tip, and sometimes, I mean, if it was really like a great one, was when you got like five bucks. I mean, sometimes they give you five bucks, but sometimes like 
the um, the Emma Brants of the of the grocery store when you would take their grocery store out, she would say, um, um, you know, she would like pull out and give you a quarter, and she'd be like, "Now, normally, I only give ten cents, but you did an extra, <laughs> an extra good, a great job, and paid special and extra special attention to my groceries. So I'm going to give you twenty five, and um, you know that um, that that so that was always, and so that's what kind of it makes me think of it. Like if Emma was getting her groceries taken out, she'd say something something like that. Oh, for sure. I think that's delightful. Instead of 25 to 10, it was probably 10 cents to one cent. Like, here's a oh, yeah. thing for not switching my bananas. Yeah, yeah. She's not the kind of person that would blow her wad at the gambling table. <laughs> no, no, she would not. No, she would not. The next scene after this is maybe one of my favorite scenes in the whole show, where Ellie is cleaning the door, and um, Opie shows up in the window and they make faces at each other. I just thought that that was probably, that just may be one of the most delightful scenes, I think, in the whole series. Oh my, oh my goodness, it's adorable. And we also get a little bit of uh, little Ronnie Howard's uh, poetry abilities, where he says, <laughs> ain't got no ma, ma, just a pa, I got an aunt B to take care of me, which is your classic A-A-B-B rhythm. Yeah. So rhyming, yeah. first one you learn in elementary school. Yeah. I mean, you have to wonder, like, with him, his timing and his delivery, and he's, like, six years old, and he somehow just, like, he goes into these things, and he just nails it. And you just wonder, did they just give him line readings? Did they tell him how, did they tell him exactly how to say it, or did he just, how how did he manage to pull that off? Yeah, it's kind of remarkable, too, considering his longer career and going through happy days and, you know, obviously what he's become now. But, you know, a a thing that I think a lot of a reason a lot of child actors don't make it famous is that they rely on their cuteness and not actually acting. And then they form these bad habits and then those don't work when they're weird looking when they're 13. Um, So he clearly has some acting chops that either however they they were able to build those early on has paid dividends. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that is like the interesting thing is, you know, did you watch that recent documentary they did on HBO about, um, about child actors? No. It's worth checking out. I mean, but they've got, they follow certain kids who are trying to make it in the industry and interviewing other kids. And you do sometimes wonder with child actors, especially in, you know, did they just want to be cute in the center of attention? I mean, or was it, or were they really, and I don't mean this because I mean, they're just kids. So you don't really, you don't really know, but I mean, you know, you feel kind of like you, you do watch, um, you do, it's not, it, it, but with, when that doesn't happen, is it like, is it, were you just happy acting or were you just happy this or do you know? Cause I feel like if you're a child actor and you're really committed to acting and this is like, this isn't me saying, one is or you know one is different from the other i mean but did you did you love the stardom or did you really just like acting because i feel like you see some child actors who ultimately just go in they find they they may get out of it for a while they get back into it or they go do theater or they go do different things and then of course you see the the kids who have just the total you know, who it doesn't work out for him and then they just fall apart. I mean, obviously it's home life and all of these things. And Ronnie Howard had a great home life, great parents, but he also just kind of felt like he just, his career, he just progressed. He did his acting. He went into happy days and then he, and then he kind of positioned himself to become a director. 
Oh, for sure. I think a lot of this has to do with how much the parents want their kids to make them famous or make them money. That really yeah. projects kind of how this kid is able to grow and sustain life in the spotlight. But I think that would be, I mean, can you imagine being six and you're little Ronnie Howard and you're on this cute little show and everybody loves you? That'd be great. I, mean, I have to imagine being Rance Howard, Ronnie, Ron Howard, Ronnie Howard's dad. You almost have to basically kind of go out of your way to keep them in check and not let not let them run run roughshod i mean because at the end of the day it's a it's a weird it's a hard it's got to be a hard tightrope to walk basically you have your kid your kid's having all this success and still discipline the child and still um and still be the be the authority in the room do you think in this in that scenario you can swap out parenting with andy griffith where like Ron, Ronnie's probably a little confused at who his dad is in some scenarios. So you're like, hey, you know, I can't go to this PTA meeting. Maybe Andy Griffith can go. We're like, ooh, I really don't want to have to get in this fight with my kid. Can we tag in the actor for this and get him a little side job? I, my one story I ever, one story I thought was pretty interesting was I was here, I was watching an interview with Ron, Ronnie Howard. He was Ron Howard at that time was talking about getting a spanking on the set of the Andy Griffith show by his dad. And he walked over to Andy Griffith, and Andy Griffith went, "You deserve that." And um, you know, so it was, <laughs> I think there was—I I don't think there was any confusion about who was in charge. Um, who was in charge at that point? <laughs> so, good. yeah. So, um, so Opie and Ellie meet. Ellie gives Opie an ice cream cone. Um, Andy shows up to try to talk to Emma about the pills. Emma is maybe making one of the worst efforts in the history of one of the worst shoplifting slash pay for my pay for what I take efforts in, in television history. She's pretty easy to spot with that. I mean, at least take your, at least take your hat off. I mean, you know, and you know, do that. And then when, she, when Ellie won't give her the pills, Andy, I don't know how Andy lets Emma just play him like a fiddle, but she did, but he, but he does. And so he's finally gets mad and leaves and puts a dime down for Opie's ice ice cream. So say, I'm not going to take anything from you for free. And the, it goes to commercial and Ellie's just like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I mean, <laughs> she's got this look on her face. Like what is wrong with these people? So she's newly, she's new into Mayberry, right? So this yeah. isn't like, she's just like, what is this little wormhole that I've walked into where these people function this way? Yeah. I'm a professional. Mm. Yeah, and I love and, and, it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I just think she's, and I don't think she's like. I think she's just like. I'm just trying to do that. You don't give somebody a some medicine without a prescription. What's so hard about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I love yeah. it. I love the hat. I love the whole thing. Uh, one th one so thing that I did notice um, in the drugstore. I was going to ask you if you recognized any of the things that they're selling. So, like, they talk about she has a uh, Dr. King syrup, and they also have a whole section behind the register that's for enlargement. Have you um, noticed this? I did not notice that. I did not. Um, I don't know what that would be. Keep your eye out for it in future episodes. Okay. All right, I will do that. Because the drugstore, as you know, plays a, plays a huge plays a huge role at least in the first season then andy comes back to the office barney's trying to read up on the sheriff's rules um barney of course 
does not does not insist that he's got it down pat, but can't even um, <laughs> can't even just list the first say the first sheriff's rule. Um, then Aunt B comes by to tell them that Emma has taken ill and asks that they bring Emma soup. So they drive over to 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 Emma's house, and I just here's something that jumped out to me. So that Barney's reviewing a law, a law book, trying to see if they've got a case to really hold <laughs> he's, up. He's learning his own jurisprudence. <laughs> it's just amazing he even found something in that encyclopedia. So go on. <laughs> Not only did he find something, he found something on the five-minute drive over to Emma's house <laughs> with, the, with the soup. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm like you talk about. I mean, you talk about a thorough review, and then the case he finds is awesome because it's one about. A, a doctor, a, a guy insisting he um he should be given arsenic when the pharmacist says you can't be given arsenic, you're not responsible enough. <laughs> and they said the judge ruled in his favor on Monday, <laughs> and on uh, Monday, uh, April fourth, or something like that. And Barney goes like, "We got her!" And then he goes, "He died. Oh no, he died on on Friday, August seventh, or something like that." It was just so funny. I mean, that's like I. That's like their ban. That's some of their like. There's the Barney's craziness and Barney's silliness, but like that banter back and forth always. Like when Barney's reading something to Andy, is just always cracks me up. I I loved it, and I missed the whole comparison between the two of you know Barney not able to memorize a single thing, and he's running his hands through his face and having a full on meltdown when he's trying to repeat back, and then as soon as he gets in a car on what can only be assumed as a bumpy dirt road and that old board, they're bouncing around, and he's read three quarters of the book and finds the one case law that pertains to pharmacists. I mean, it's, it's he's fantastic. I mean, you know, he's got a gift for the paper trailer, or the uh, or the, or the law book <laughs> review. I don't. He's know. in the wrong profession. Yeah, he should have been a public defender. Yeah, yeah, he should have. So they go, they go into Emma's. Um, she's she's lying on the couch eating eating a turkey leg. Um, just talking about <laughs> how she's falling ill, and you know, it's her time's limited. So Ellie comes by, gives her pills, um, you know, brings her some soup as well. Andy goes back out and he's like, well, I really think that was nice of you. I'm just wondering what changed your mind. And finally we learned that they're sugar pills that are just, you know, useless and they don't do anything. And, you know, that's why they've allowed this to go on for as long as they have. Can you, so I like to think that this is, she probably got herself the turkey leg um, but I do like to really think that she was so sick and someone's like, this will make you feel better. Here's a fried turkey leg. <laughs> I can't imagine a scenario. Like, is that part of like, is that part of the COVID treatment that, you know, people are, are will be prescribed turkey legs? Um, I mean, I hope that. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of like, if I get COVID, I feel like I can. I, I guess you can't taste it, so it doesn't matter. But I mean, I'd be kind of like, I'm eating whatever I want at that point. I mean, I mean, I mean I'm kind of like, let's get pizza. I mean, let's, we don't know how this is going to go. So I don't know. Maybe that was Emma's philosophy. The, the other question I had was, is, so she makes two pies a day, right? This might be a continuity thing, but is she still able to make her pies while she's sick? Or do you think the pies keep her going? I mean, I think, I think, you know, Hers is a, you know, a daily regimen, you know, basically fueled by pie making and sugar pills, I think is, is what we're, is what we're seeing with Emma. Um, but I do Just think, a little flare up of diabetes. 
<laughs> just a little flare, just just a tad. But I think you can see, and this is this maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here, but I think you can see a direct connection with Emma's obsession with the pills and everybody in town's lackadaisical attitude towards them, including the doctors and the pharmacists. And you can see that connection and how it leads to the opioid crisis that is ravaging this country right now. I think it is soup to nuts. You are spot on. And it all, and the only thing I would add is that it all started with that dollar candy that the little that the old lady got at the drugstore when she was seven. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's you're right. You're right. It probably she had a soda in the 1910s and are the are the 1920s and just became obsessed and her grandchildren great-grandchildren probably you know you could, probably are are probably are oxycodon addicts that's probably what you're what you're seeing you can probably you can almost see the ProPublica uh, profile on on this this tragedy that the Sackler family has put upon Mayberry <laughs> I mean, you, you, you could, you could, I mean, you, you know, you could, you know, Emma Brandt, um, you know, just the Brandt family and what is, what is taken, what is taking place, you know, you see the, the, the picture of Emma, I mean, you know, that, you know, she, everybody thought her um, pills, you know, or just her addiction to sugar pills were just harmless, but, you know, <laughs> it went unchecked. Like making light of a serious to. scenario. We do, we are. This is not. This is not. Um. This is not. This is we not, hide behind this, our humor. This is not uh, making light of the opioid uh, a, a crisis. This is what this is making light of is the silly the silliness of trying to connect stuff <laughs> like this to it. Thanks for that, Aaron. We really needed that for our sponsor. Well, well you know, we you know, we don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to be offensive here. You know, and um, and so then Andy uh, sees. So they leave. Andy sees a car parked in front of the fire hydrant. Um, he's about to give her a ticket, but Ellie talks him out of it, saying to be compassionate and consider the, what the person's going through, like she did with Emma. Andy, you know, goes, "Okay, I'm gonna be nice, nicer. To, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this person, cut this person some slack." She hops in the car parked in the fire hydrant, in front of the fire hydrant, and drives, drives off. So um, she's, you know, Ellie is one step ahead of everybody. She really is. And I feel like she had maybe, you know, seen Andy. There's just a comparison to when for the musician episode of, you know, illegal parking was really a strong thing that made a whole career for somebody. And I think Emma maybe knew that Andy felt bad for the way that he used his hard hand of the law to um, keep those people in town so that they could, so that he could get his friend on tour. And then maybe she knew that she could, um, get out of the parking ticket. I'm just talking in circles here. There might I mean, be something here. I'm going to work I, on this I, for a while. I'm going to write a five paragraph essay and I'm going to send it to you for a grade. I think there is, I think there is no connection to any of that whatsoever. I think there could have just been a stack of scripts for the Andy Griffith show and they were like, well, which one do we want to do? Which one do we want to shoot here? And um, I don't think really Bobby, what, what Andy did to Bobby Fleet to keep him in town really has anything to do with, with Ellie's fire hydrant um, issue. Well, you know, I think our viewer, our, our listeners, if they listen to a few, I think they're really going to start to put it together that there is a strong through line that nobody knew about. And we're going to find it along the way. I mean, that you're going to find along the way. I mean, I think that's the, um, that's the thing is like, if the listeners pick up there, I mean, I feel like, 
I feel like we we could, you know, there'd be there could be shirts if we actually get any listeners, if we actually have any growth or anything that you know this thing actually picks up. Which there's a we we, we have the potential, then we have the potential to be, we have to be the potential to be the of the thousands or millions of podcasts out there that have just a handful of <laughs> listeners. But if we do. And, you know, if we do actually get some success, we'll get shirts made up that say, I'm with Chris. And um, they talk about, you know, <laughs> being with you and, and your, you know, your connection, all, all the underlying themes and connections that everybody else has missed on the Andy Griffith show except you. And you will say, I'm with Aaron. And it says, why are you so stupid, Chris? <laughs> I mean, no, there, there you go. <laughs> No, I think there's a, I think we've got, I think we've got, um, but I do like the stuff that you point out. I just feel like you're just giving this show, I think you're thinking like, what if David Chase wrote the Andy Griffith show? And I'm just kind of like, that's not what we're dealing with here. Oh, that's definitely what it is. So, so, um, so great, great, very good episode. Um, what did you have any additional thoughts on it? Final thoughts on it? No, the other kind of piece that I thought this, episode was similar to is they just after they finished they just took the script and then just threw my pills in random places throughout because i feel like throughout people are just like my pill, my pill. that's the one thing we have the one line that we haven't addressed uh, <laughs> i mean it, it, that actually when you think about it we were joking about the oxycontin thing but i mean an old woman running around screaming about her pills that is not, that really has not aged very well. I mean, that's kind of a, um, that's kind of a, that's almost something that if you put that in today, um, it would be kind of a, like almost a, it, with, with, with all of the issues with pharmaceuticals in this country, that would be, that would, that would not be considered amusing. We waded into a lot of deeper topics than I would have expected. You know, we had a good little gender equity conversation and then we got into the addiction crisis in america i can't wait to see what what comes next Aaron. you're not just a smile and some bright teeth <laughs> well that's kind of you christopher i mean I, I i think with this podcast i mean i definitely want i definitely think the show is a wonderful wonderful show and i and it's one that i love one that i've loved ever since i was a little kid but i do think there are questions about at times where issues like this pop up where you just have to talk about how you know how does it relate today and why is it still kind of harmless and funny when if it had been handled in a in, a, in any sort of different way by any sort of other different by any but any other group of writers or um or directors or, and uh, without andy griffith or don knotts how it could have just seemed really outdated and not funny, not not funny in today's age. Yeah, for sure. It has a lasting piece that um, it's timeless for the years. It's time after time. It's Celine Dion. That's not that's not Celine Dion. That's Cindy Lauper. Okay, we'll work on that next time. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to I'm happy to correct you. That's fine. Uh -oh. So, all right. Well, this has been fun. Uh, next week, we will do episode five from season one called Irresistible Andy. Um, in the meantime, feel free to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And until next week, I weep 10 for you. 10 for you.